Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of the BLS Report. The BLS Report is produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia to honour the late Bob Baxt AO. Bob was a friend and mentor and was instrumental in establishing and developing the Business Law Section. I'm John Keeves, a partner with Johnston Winter and Slattery, sorry, Johnston Winter Slattery, no ampersand, and a member of the executive of the Business Law Section. I'm joined by my regular co-host and a fellow member of the BLS Executive, Professor Pamela Hanrahan from UNSW. Uh, indeed, Deputy Chair of the BLS Executive. Also very relevant to today's session, Pamela was an ASIC Regional Commissioner for a time and was involved in ASIC enforcement and is an expert in both financial services and corporate governance. Pamela. Thanks, John. It's good to be here. This is the 12th um, BLS Report podcast, which means we've been doing this for three years and what an interesting three years they've been, 2020, 21, and 2022. Uh, I should add that we have been threatening to have another episode about crypto, and much has been happening in that space. We will talk a bit about uh, crypto today, I expect, but another full session on crypto will need to wait for 2023. Um, our timing is pretty good today because this has been quite a big week, uh, or big, big couple of weeks, actually, for ASIC on the enforcement front. Today, we're talking with Sarah Court, Deputy Chair of ASIC and a former Commissioner of the OCCC. Welcome, Sarah. Good morning to you both. Sarah was a commissioner of the ACCC from 2008 to May 2021, and during that time made a huge contribution to administration enforcement of Australia's competition and consumer laws, and previously worked with the AGS as a senior executive lawyer. Sarah, great to have you with us. I'm sure our listeners will be very interested in what you will have to say. Now, just for completeness, I should note my firm, JWS, represents ASIC from time to time in enforcement uh, proceedings, and um, also... Uh, at your old shop, the ACCC, although not me personally. Of course, we also advise and represent directors and corporates in ASIC enforcement um, actions, so we're sort of on both sides of that street. Um, you've been a, a commissioner, deputy chair at both uh, ACCC and ASIC. Are there any significant differences, Sarah, in your roles uh, or in indeed in the organisations that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Yeah, thanks for the question, John. It's a question I've been asked quite a lot, actually, since I started at ASIC and I realise I don't think there's been many commissioners that have made the move from the ACCC to ASIC or, or vice versa. Perhaps um, both Peter Kell and Delia Ricard, who are um, ACCC deputy chairs, had worked at ASIC but not in the commissioner role. So in some ways, John, um, I'd say a regulator is a regulator is a regulator in the sense that in both places you are faced with a deluge of complaints and calls upon the regulator to do things, to stop conduct, to intervene. Uh, and certainly, in my experience at both places, most of the criticisms of the regulators come from calls from the public and from the media that, you see, that you're not doing enough, that you should be, usually it's in an enforcement context, that you should be doing more. Um, and in terms of the processes and procedures, of decision making, I think in the both those regulators, they're quite similar. So I chaired the enforcement committee at the ACCC for some 13 years and we met on a Thursday afternoon and we considered paper after paper and matter after matter and the, the commissioners sit around and make decisions about what enforcement action to take and uh, what the appropriate um, sanctions should be that we might submit to a court. And at ASIC, that's very similar um, to my surprise, the Enforcement Committee at ASIC also meets on a Thursday afternoon um, and all the commissioners sit on that committee with me that I also chair. Uh, we meet 
every week, which I think gives an idea of the volume of, of work that comes through um, and across our desks. And we similarly make decisions about what cases to take on, what cases to end, uh, what investigations to end, I should say. So, so very similar in lots of ways. Um, I think, though, I have found ASIC's model to be, it, it's a more complex model, I think. The, the, the ACCC is sort of front and centre, a conduct regulator. It sees misconduct, it goes in, it takes enforcement action. Um, it, if it wins, it uh, makes a, um, it, it puts a lot of uh, media attention and uh, resources into making sure that the deterrent effect of that action um, is well known. And then, in a sense, it moves on. Whereas at ASIC, I think because of the, uh, the licensing arrangements at ASIC, the model is more complex. Um, there's a range of additional powers in financial services that, that were not open to the ACCC. So uh, I confess I'm still learning about all of those banning orders and product intervention powers and stop orders. It, it's just a broader suite of tools. And the other issue I am learning about at ASIC is uh, and I just describe it reasonably simply as the stakes are a lot higher at ASIC. And I think that is, again, because of the subject matter. So if I compare a misleading deceptive conduct case at the ACCC, it might involve a, a consumer paying $12 instead of $6 for a packet of Nurofen, for example, which has made you know millions of dollars of profit for the company that makes the misleading representation. But the individual impact on the impacted consumer is often or usually relatively minor. At ASIC, when someone gets misled into or deceived into transferring the contents of their superannuation into a self-managed super fund that somebody then runs off with, or they invest you know, tens of thousands of dollars in a managed investment scheme that falls over, then the impact on that individual is so much more significant for that individual. And so I think that quite rightly puts a real spotlight on, you know, what is ASIC doing about that? Should ASIC have done something at the front end? Why did that person have a licence in the first place if they were licensed? Did ASIC get notifications of misconduct reports? Why didn't it act on it sooner? And so the intensity, I think, of that scrutiny and interest at ASIC is is much more, um, just much more intense, I think, and understandably so. Thanks, Sarah. I think you're right. I think that licensing role that ASIC performs in relation to financial sector entities and credit providers does fundamentally change the balance. And I'm going to ask you in a minute about how ASIC chooses court-based enforcement rather than other alternatives. And I think that that does play into that space. So thank you very much for that answer. I might I might just ask you about ASIC's published enforcement priorities for 2023. I think that was a really positive development when ASIC Chair Joe Longo made public the enforcement priorities at the annual forum a couple of months ago. Is there anything in that that you would like to emphasise for our listeners? I might ask you to speak separately about the different parts of ASIC's role, so financial services, then markets regulation, and then in the corporate space. Is there anything you'd like to pull out of those enforcement priorities for us? I might take a step back first, Pamela, and just talk about having enforcement priorities, uh, which is something that I introduced at the ACCC quite some time ago. And there are different views on the wisdom of having 
publicly stated enforcement priorities. Because I think on the one hand, there can be the, the argument that says, if you publish a list of priorities and where you're going to de- devote your enforcement attention, then is that sort of sending a green light to all those other areas or all those other kinds of conduct um, that, look, don't worry, because the regulator's not going to come knocking because it's it's looking elsewhere. And, and I think there is something in that. Uh, but I found it a very, or we found it a very effective tool at the ACCC. And I'm delighted that for the first time, as you say, in November at our forum, we did release specific enforcement priorities that are more granular. I think it's fair to say than perhaps some of those broader strategic priorities that that um, that we've announced through the the corporate plan. Um, and the benefit, as I see it, of enforcement priorities is, of, of course, it sends a communication to the market about what it is that we care about, what we think warrants the expenditure of our finite resources in an enforcement sense. But it's also an accountability mechanism for the regulator itself. And so what I've been talking about internally is to say, look, once we've determined what we think are the the key issues and the key problems that we should be tackling from a compliance and enforcement sense, we then need to also make sure we deliver against those. We need to be able to go back to the market and to the industry, to people like yourselves, you know, at the end of the 12 months and say, look, we said that we cared about crypto. We said that we cared about the potential investor or consumer harm here or the market harm there. And look, this is what we've done. We've taken this range of actions. We've, we've issued these regulatory guides. We might have issued information sheets. We might have issued infringement notices, court-based action, whatever it might be. But here's what we have done to address this issue. So I think, um, as I say, it's an important accountability measure for us. And I've also had the experience in the past that the mere act of a regulator announcing an area for enforcement focus has a deterrent impact in and of itself. Because if, if we say, for example, one of our enforcement priorities is unfair contract terms in insurance, I would assume that that would be a, a significant prompt to that industry sector to say, actually, we should perhaps go and have another close look at our, uh, the, our contractual terms because ASIC is going to be looking at those. Um, in terms of the priorities themselves, um, I, one of the things I would call out is that we have, and we have a you know a deep uh, passion internally about the impact of misconduct on Indigenous consumers, Pamela, and we have called that out as one of our enduring uh, priorities, which I think is an important signal uh, from us. And then the various um, issues that we are focusing in on through 2023 are all of those, uh, many of the things I think that won't come as a surprise, things like um, the design and distribution obligations that I know we're going to talk about later, uh, greenwashing and sustainable finance, crypto, um, unfair uh, contract terms in insurance. Uh, so there are uh, cyber security, which is, of course, a really significant issue um, in the markets area at the moment. So there's quite a long list there, Pamela, but my real concern is to make sure that having identified those issues, we then focus in our resources on them, make sure that we deliver against them, but not to do that in a blindsided way, which means that if there's some some other form of conduct that suddenly comes over the horizon at us that we hadn't planned for, we need to make sure that we keep some resources and capacity aside to turn our attention to, to whatever emerges in the course of that uh, next coming period. Thank you. I might just ask a 
broader question about the current thinking at ASIC about using court-based enforcement. As part of the Royal Commission, of course, into misconduct in the banking, superannuation and financial services industry, to give it its full title, the Hain Royal Commission. Commissioner Hain was quite critical, very critical in the interim report of ASIC's um, perceived reluctance to use court-based enforcement. And that resulted in him asking of the previous chair of ASIC, you know, why don't you start with significant or systemic misconduct by large financial institutions? Why doesn't ASIC start by asking the question, why wouldn't we litigate this and work backwards from there? Now, there's a bit of chatter, I guess, in the industry and amongst lawyers as to whether ASIC thinks that it's kind of backed away from that, why not litigate? Um, Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I would. So obviously I'm very familiar with the the why not litigate phrase and the the context in which Commissioner Hain was asking the question of ASIC. Um, And I think it's interesting, Pamela, in your question, because you you did qualify it somewhat by referring to within that context of systemic conduct by large institutions. But of course, that's not how uh, the phrase is talked about. It's talked about generally without qualification. Um, I think my own view on why not litigate was that as a as a catchphrase, now that we are some way away from the Royal Commission, it just wasn't a particularly or isn't a particularly helpful phrase um, because, of course, there's often a myriad of reasons for why you might not, not litigate. And so we moved away from that phrase, which I think was really adopted almost as a response to this perception and criticism coming out of the Royal Commission that ASIC was not taking strong enough enforcement action in some of these circumstances. So I confess I thought, well, look, you know, Joe and I here, of course, we're strong enforcement enforcers. It's the background of both of us. Um, and that, you know, we just don't really need this phrase to guide our decision making. I uh, very much acknowledge on my own behalf, I was naive or uh, as to what that might signal, which of course uh, was the complete opposite of what I had assumed it would would signal, Pamela. Because I mean, I, litigation is always at the at the front and centre um, of my mind, particularly in relation to misconduct by large institutions. I think you know one of the challenges facing ASIC is unfortunately there seems to be you know continuing misconduct by large institutions and and when i say continuing misconduct i mean that in the sense that you know we are getting still getting similar numbers of of breach reports for example about you know systemic issues that are impacting large financial institutions whether they be banks uh, superannuation trustees or insurers about overcharging or you know issues that have happened that are requiring wide-scale remediation programs uh, in reply. And I think, well, you know, it's interesting. We we obviously cannot litigate each and every one of those, and I'm not arguing that we should, but I I think there there remains no end of... Um, uh, no end of opportunity for us to uh, to be litigating. And so our, our issue then is, well, we have finite resources. Let's say we file proceedings in 70, 80, 90 matters every year. Well, then the question for us is, well, what should those matters be? Who should the respondents be? Is there um, a regulatory benefit in suing the Commonwealth Bank or ANZ or whoever it may be year in, year out for some of these uh, 
compliance issues. And so those are things that we have to we have to grapple with. You know, where where is our where is our time best spent? But I have been trying to publicly say that me not talking about why not litigate does not signal any kind of moving away from litigation. In fact, you know, to, to the complete contrary, that's uh, that's very much in in my blood. I think the other area that we are we and I are very keen to work on is also the size of penalties, Pamela. I mean, we haven't had a lot of conduct um, that has been before the courts that is conduct that wholly postdates the change in the penalty regime, which came in in 2019. And I very much think it's time that uh, the penalties against big firms, I'm talking about the big end of town, not, not your you know, much smaller players, but that those penalties need to get significantly higher uh, to really have an impact, I think, on senior executives and boards' consideration of some of these issues. Thank you. I, I note that ASIC is interested in DDO, so that's design and distribution obligation, and is using litigation as a strategy um, to try and persuade regulated firms to think more carefully about their target market determinations. What's the thinking about how litigation is going to drive that um, development of that area of the law? Like, what are you looking for when you're looking at target market determinations and thinking about taking action in respect of them? What's the sort of number one concern that you're chasing there, Sarah? So again, taking a step back, I think the design and distribution obligations we have come to realise over the past 12 months or so since they have been uh, applicable uh, is just what a significant change to consumer protection in financial services these new obligations are. And I think we've only realised that almost as we've been working through it, Pamela, having a look at target market determinations, which of course then requires us to turn our mind uh, as well to having a look at, you know, is this an appropriate target market determination? Are these people to whom this product is being marketed or sold, you know, are they, is it appropriate um, for them? And there's a lot of um, judgment calls that have to be made um, in that in that vein. And it's an area I suspect on which reasonable minds can certainly differ. So there, were, there are some areas where we say it's black and white because no target market determination has been issued in the first place. That's that's easier than having a look at a target market determination where somebody has turned their mind to it and done so carefully but come to a different conclusion than perhaps ASIC would have come to. So our main regulatory response most recently has been to issue interim stop orders where we look at a target market determination and say either you haven't done this properly we think it's applying too broadly, um, but the interim stop order allows the issuer of the product to remedy uh, to remedy that. And in many circumstances, I think we're up to more than 20 interim stop orders that have been issued. Um, and in several of those occasions, the firm has gone away and reissued it and, uh, and that's been fine. We do, though, think it's important to have court-based enforcement outcomes in what is a new provision. So... Uh, of course, we would be quite rightly criticised if here's this great new power that you've got, one that um, consumer groups and others have been calling for for years, uh, if we did not 
have any litigation testing and looking at you know that that very power so as you said we've issued two sets of proceedings i think almost in the last month so that's 12 months after these obligations came into uh, came into effect the first one was against american express australia which was the issuer of a particular product um, it was a credit card that was distributed through data jones stores and we just formed the view that that uh, product was not being um, issued within the terms of the target target market determination and the second one uh, just last week was against first mac which is a distributor so that's the first litigated case in relation to the distributor um, of a product and so i think twofold pamela firstly you go to court to send specific deterrence to those involved to say we think you've got a problem we're going to court and we're seeking penalties in relation to both of those matters to send a general deterrent to the industry to say you know this is uh this is not an obligation you can ignore if you don't get this right then and if ASIC is there they're all allegations at the moment so if ASIC is found to be successful then uh, you can get findings made against you and penalties ordered and also I think it's fair to say that there'll be it will be helpful to have some jurisprudence in relation to uh, these new, you know, what are very new obligations that we're all learning are learning about. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, this is the BLS report, and we are talking to Sarah Court, Deputy Chair of ASIC. Um, look, we cannot speak to a regulator at the moment, at least, without mentioning the crypto word, particularly given recent events involving FTX and noting that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested last week. Can you tell us about ASIC's views about whether and what sort of what whether regulation is needed and what sort of regulation is needed in the crypto space given those recent events and other things? Yes, I mean crypto is obviously a a vexed issue um, for many regulators around the world, um, and our position uh, the regulation of crypto, you know, is is a matter for the the parliament of the day to sort out what it wants to do with regulation of crypto and treasury, uh, as I'm sure many listeners know, have uh, reasonably recently, or are just about to, I think, issue a consultation paper on what uh, regulate, various options for regulation of crypto in Australia. Our position, and, and our chair, Joe Longo, has been very vocal about this um, ever since he started uh, his role, is to say that we, are, we care about the consumers and investors and the impact on them of crypto and that any regulation need to have that front and centre. So there is a tension obviously between innovation and disruption and introducing competition to the financial sector and obviously that is all very important and I wouldn't want to shy away from that. But at the same time as recent events have you know, tragically shown, uh, people are putting a lot of money into crypto-based assets often we suspect, you know, without fully appreciating the risks or what it is that they are purchasing and can be surprised to find that there really is no regulatory regime or consumer investor protection uh, in relation to many of these uh, many of these investments. So our position is, yes, we need regulation of some form. It should focus on uh, protecting investors and consumers to the extent that we can, but recognising that it is a vexed issue We've also been, John, taking action where we can. So where we do think that a product, while it might involve or relate to, will be based on a crypto-based asset, that that doesn't 
immediately remove it from um, ASIC's regulatory reach. So if you have a product that for all intents and purposes is a financial product but just happens to have some form of connection to a crypto asset, then we've taken a number of cases again in the last few months uh, raising issues in relation to those matters. So we've had the finder matter where there's a, a product involving crypto that we are alleging is a debenture um, and we filed those proceedings just last week. Um, we've had uh, two other matters uh, recently, the one relating a crypto relating to a crypto asset called Coin and the other one's name has just slipped my mind for the moment. But we are uh, certainly where we're seeing conduct that we think is the selling of a financial product or service and just happens to relate to a crypto asset at the same time, we are nevertheless going to uh, get some clarity uh, about those issues in the court. Thanks, Sarah. I spend a lot of time correcting the misapprehension that crypto is unregulated in Australia. Of course, it's still illegal to steal people's money. It's still um, a breach of the law to engage in misleading and deceptive conduct. Um, is there a gap between what ASIC is expected to take on and what belongs to the ACCC? If crypto is not a financial product, why isn't the ACCC engaged here? Uh, no, it's a very good question. And I think when we're, when we're talking about it being unregulated, I think what people are referring to, Pamela, is it's unlicensed. So I, I completely agree with you um, in relation to if it's, if it's not a financial product, then there's another regulator. We've worked closely with the ACCC in relation to these issues in the past um, to work out well, look, where do things um, where do things squarely fall? And I think it's fair to say that in our, our current discussions, um, the ACCC has, has pretty much said if there, if there is an issue uh, that would fall under the misleading and deceptive conduct provisions, for example, so under Australian consumer law provisions, that the ACCC would delegate to ASIC their, their power, its power to, uh, to get involved in that. So it, that um, those discussions happened, I think it's fair to say, quite some time ago before crypto was quite the, the thing that it is now. And so we are continuing to work with closely with the ACCC on, on those issues. Thank you. I'm now going to move on and just ask you about the proceedings against the directors and senior executives of the Star Proprietary Limited, the second, if you like, casino. Um, clearly, this is a very significant piece of uh, litigation by ASIC in the director's duty space. I know, Sarah, that most people will start by asking you the question, if star, why not crown? Yes, Pamela, they do. Um, and I understand very much the reason for that. I think in these matters, the the challenges, if that, that's a polite way to put it, that both uh, crown and star have faced I can, and the findings of uh, various very public inquiries can make it appear, I think, to a lay observer that the conduct is is very similar. Um, it's public, it's clear. And so if there are uh, contraventions that can be alleged of directors' duties in relation to one set of directors, in this case, the star entertainment directors, you know, why not in Crown? As a as an enforcement agency, as a regulator, we of course can look very closely at what comes out of various royal commissions, public inquiries, public reports, and the like. 
but we can't use those findings as admissible evidence in our own proceedings against directors. And so in both of these cases, the approach that we took was exactly the same. We took the publicly available information and obviously we have close relationships with the, the various other regulators involved, most particularly Austrac, but also have um, the, uh, the, state, um, the state regulators as well. But we effectively go back to square one, Pamela, and we, we investigate and we, in relation to directors' duties, for example, we are looking at what did those directors have in front of them at the time that particular decisions were made and then, you know, what would a, a re an objectively reasonable director have done um, in that circumstance at that time faced with that uh, information? Um, and so in the Crown matter, after a full investigation, you know, acquiring under compulsion tens of thousands of documents, uh, interviewing uh, numerous witnesses, including all of the directors bar one in Crown, uh, again, using our compulsory uh, powers, we reach the conclusion and obviously based on um, significant and extensive uh, advice, uh, including from outside of ASIC, from, from senior counsel, that there was not a case uh, that we could reasonably put to the court in relation to the directors of Crown. In relation to STAR, we went through exactly the same process and we reached the conclusion uh, that there was a case that could, and obviously the Commission decided should be properly put against uh, all of the uh, non-executive directors of the STAR group together with uh, three of the uh, very senior executives. Thank you. My next question about the STAR proceedings is this. If ASIC were to win in this case, how should non-executive directors in the future behave? What, what's the lesson here? What's ASIC trying to persuade people to do differently in future? I think uh, the view here, and again, this is something that um, Joe Longo has been talking about uh, in, in recent times and since we, since we filed the STAR proceedings, but prior to that as well. I mean, that, that at the heart of the STAR allegations, and I do have to be a little cautious, obviously, because this is in front of the court now and these are only um, allegations, um, but at the heart of what we're concerned about is that that group of directors sitting on the STAR board, we say, did not appropriately and reasonably inform itself as to the risks that were, we say, and I think you know, people could understand that um, saying this, that were evident to the board sitting at the top of the casino, that risks of money laundering um, and criminal associations we say were, were and should have been evident to any reasonable director exercising uh, care and um, due diligence in that role and that there were, to use a, a, a red, a, a, um, a colloquial term, but, you know, there were red flags making their way up to the board uh, by way, for example, of a, a report by um, an independent consultant saying, look, you've got real risks of money laundering here. And our allegation is that when faced with that within the environment that the STAR was operating, including all of the public information that was coming out about Crown and what was going on there, that a reasonable board faced with that information would have satisfied itself, would have directed its executive to ascertain whether or not those risks were materialising and if so, to act on them. So it's a, 
it's a particular set of circumstances, Pamela. I think, you know, it's not it's not many boards in many industries that I think face the particular issues that we allege should have been evident and should have been explored by the STAR board. But I think the broader message for directors is if red flags are making their way up to you, if you are getting notified of things, of risks that may materialise, that may be damaging or go on to be damaging to the company, then you as a director can't just turn a blind eye to that and, and carry on. Your, your job there is to exercise care and diligence, explore the issue, task your senior executives to go away and do what needs to be done to bring that back to you, to your, your attention. So I, I think, you know, my, my sense is that most directors sitting on uh, listed boards would be aware of, aware of that. I mean, I don't know that this sends any massive new lesson about directors' duties and their obligations. I think what it should send a message, though, is that in a circumstance like this, where we have the admissible evidence, then ASIC certainly will be taking on the harder cases. And no doubt this will be a hard case. I mean, to have 11 separate individual respondents uh, will no doubt require a very significant amount of ASIC's attention, resources, legal budget and the like to carry this matter um, through the court over what will um, potentially be for years. So this is a big commitment by ASIC um, to take on a matter of this kind and in the way that we have done it, which is to say we're not going to single out particular directors. We see this as a board failing. It's an alleged board failing. Thank you. I agree. I think that's the real significance. It's the first one that I can recall in a long time, probably James Hardy and Centro, the other two, where it's um, it's a proceeding against the whole board. Uh, I know we do have many listeners who are corporate counsel, uh, and so there's a bit of interest in um, particularly ASIC Chair Joe Longo's comments about the role of the general counsel. I think he may have used the word conscience of the organisation publicly. Um, could you just comment briefly on what the thinking is about, um, you know, I've wondered whether part of this is intended from a regulatory strategy point of view actually to empower general counsel to remind boards that, you know, their loyalty, first of all, is to the company as their client rather than as their employer. Is, is that the thinking in singling out the general counsel in this case? I'd probably put it a slightly different way, Pamela, and, you know, Joe, as you say, has, has talked a bit publicly in relation to the role of the General Counsel, and, of course, that reflects, to some extent, his experience because he was the General Counsel, obviously, of a very large organisation for quite some time. So my own perspective is perhaps a little different in that I would say, you know, almost the opposite to your question. We have not singled out general counsel. We've treated the general counsel in the same way as we've treated other senior executives in, in this matter. So we, the senior executives that have been um, named in the proceedings are the former CEO, the former CFO, a former, um, I, think, I think the right description was a casino control officer or, or, or some sort of senior executive with responsibility for the casinos and the general counsel. So the general counsel was one of the four. And in determining to name Paula Martin as a 
responded, it was simply analysing the information and evidence that we had in relation to her, uh, her actions or in some circumstances alleged lack of action, so lack of putting things before the board that uh, we concluded was a failure of her officer's duty. So we didn't differentiate, I think is the important thing, um, between the role of the general counsel in this case and on the facts that we were looking at here. We, we didn't, I guess it was, it, it, perhaps the message is that being a general counsel is not a, you know, it, it's not a card to say you'll never be prosecuted because you're a general counsel. And so I think the, the message, if anything, is just to say that General councils, as, general councils as officers of the company have similar obligations to meet their officers' duties as all the other executives. It is important to ASIC that this uh, myth or chatter, I think as you described earlier, Pamela, about ASIC taking a less uh, strong enforcement approach is, is something that I do feel it's important just to debunk and if I look at ASIC's record in enforcement, even if I just look at the last month or so, in addition to the STAR proceedings, which are obviously very significant, and I should also say done in a, a very truncated time period. I think the team has worked um, extremely um, diligently to get that matter filed. But we've also had proceedings filed, as we've talked about today, in the design and distribution obligation area we've had against Amex Australia at the first MAC, a distributor of, um, of a product. We've had um, executives in statewide super charged here in South Australia for uh, alleged offences. We've instituted proceedings against Mix Persons and its former CEO in relation to continuous disclosure breaches. We've instituted proceedings against one path, the insurer for breaches of utmost good faith provisions. Uh, we've issued multiple interim stop orders, uh, bannings of various financial advisors and others. And so the suite of that enforcement work, as I say, even if you just look at the last month or two, is extensive um, and impactful and sending, you know, deterrent messages out all the time. And and so I, you know, I, I use this podcast and any opportunity to really try to get people that are interested or concerned that ASIC may be doing less enforcement to just look at look at the history of the cases, look at the statistics, you know, look at what we're doing, um, and hopefully um, over time that myth will continue to be uh, debunked. So at the ASIC annual forum um, a couple of months ago, you were speaking about proposals to introduce a new general prohibition on unfair conduct. Could you tell us a bit about that and how that would sit with ASIC's remit and uh, whether it's a reflection on the failures of uh, the unconscionable conduct remedies to get adequate outcomes like in Cobell? Yes, look, it's a, it's a very interesting area, um, John, one that I'm very uh, have had a, a passion to follow for quite some time. The calls for, I think, what's generally called an unfair trading provision um, have been coming in, from a couple of different perspectives. So consumer groups, uh, and most particularly CALC uh, and Choice, have been calling publicly for the introduction of an unfair trading provision 
uh, for quite some years now and the ACCC coming out of its work on the digital platforms and a couple of its um, very uh, significant reports in that area also concluded that there was a gap in the consumer protection laws that warranted the introduction of an unfair trading provision. I think the third um, limb has been a profound disappointment from many of us in recent developments in the law of unconscionable conduct, which statutory unconscionable conduct started out with such great promise in the early 2000s. And we had a number of, you know, very um, helpful decisions, including from the full court and including from um, Chief Justice Alsop, you know, many years ago that I must say made me think that the, the, the issue of statutory unconscionability had been sort of well and truly resolved. And then more recently, though, we've had a series of um, much less uh, satisfying decisions. One of the ones that, and, and I never supported personally an unfair trading provision until sort of relatively recently, um, we had a, the RCC had a case in the Medibank private matter where Justice Beach concluded that Medibank's conduct was, I'm just trying to remember his words, but I think he said Medibank's conduct may have been harsh and it may have been unfair, but that it didn't amount to unconscionable. And then, of course, we had the, the Cobelt case, which you, you referred to in your question, which um, I think left a lot of us filled with despair um, if, for a range of reasons. So I think all of that has moved um, many people now to be suggesting that there is a gap in the consumer protection laws and that an unfair trading provision is warranted. Having said that, what that might look like is far from certain. Um, there are um, models overseas uh, that some people are, are drawing on. Um, some people are suggesting that could you just change the unconscionable conduct provision and cross out unconscionable and put in unfair. Um, so there's a, there's a lot to be done. There's, a, again, um, a Treasury are leading a consultation process on this, um, whether or not it requires the significant detriment or the risk of significant detriment to consumers, you know, some qualification so it's not just at large, which, you know, very much understand why that might cause some reservation. So, so my personal view is uh, it is time for one. Uh, I think ASIC's view is of that nature as well. Uh, but we do recognise that there is still a lot of work to be done as to what it might look like. Um, I know the small business lobby are calling for an unfair trading provision uh, to deal with those interactions between big business and small business as the unconscionable conduct provisions allow for. Um, so I suspect that we will get there, um, but I suspect it, it may not be immediate and certainly we need to listen to other views from across the board as to the, you know, any unintended consequences of such a provision. Thank you, Sarah Court, uh, Deputy Chair of ASIC, and uh, thank you to uh, my co-presenter, Pamela Hanrahan. And uh, thanks also to um, uh, Jess Morrow, who's actually the um, uh, very, very important uh, in this process and, and uh, organises all these uh, podcasts. Uh, this has been the BLS Report, a podcast by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia in honour of the late Professor Bob Baxt AO. And we'd like to uh, uh, wish all of our 
listeners uh, a happy holiday season and all the best for 2023. And uh, we look forward to coming back uh, next year and uh, doing more podcasts. So uh, thanks. We're all done.